0: We want to say thank you for listening, so our sponsors have given some great deals in this episode. Check these out. This episode of The Real Rescue Podcast is brought to you by Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated helicopter hoist and winch provider. Access, because when lives are at stake and conditions are challenging, clear communication is of the utmost importance. And... SR3 rescue concepts because you don't know what you don't know. Breeze Eastern. They dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years. Their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze eastern.com. The Access PNG wireless ICS system can bring cutting edge wireless intercommunication system technology to any aircraft. The PNG system can be fully integrated into an existing ICS system or can be carried on and off as a mobile base station. They can go anywhere, at any time, on any aircraft. Plus with the strongest and most robust waterproof handheld on the market, this system can take a hit and keep working. Their wireless intercom systems are designed to enhance situational awareness through improved communication capability. This system brings superior noise cancelling technology to eliminate rotor wash and engine noise from your ICS. The Axness PNG wireless system is currently deployed in more than 1,800 public safety, air ambulance, and search and rescue aircrafts worldwide. I have personally used the Axness system in four different countries and on five different airframes. It is awesome. If you want more information, contact them today at Axness.com. That's A-X-N-E-S dot com. You just make sure you tell them, Quinny sent me. And SR3 Rescue Concepts is a training company that can help with your helicopter training, a standardization and safety check, or maybe just an audit or an FAA refresher. They are here to bring your agency up-to-date with the most current techniques, rules, regulations and equipment. The training staff is awesome! With a certified flight instructor pilots, experienced crew members, which I am happy to say that I am one of them. They offer training in rescue, medical, tactical, firefighting, ground operations, and night vision goggle use. SR3 is also partnered with Petzl to assist with personal protective equipment and the highly specific Lazard. SR3 also goes beyond the helicopter world as they provide high angle rescue training and tactical medicine training. Contact them today at sr3rescueconcepts.com or over on Instagram at sr3 underscore rescue. Coming up next, we've got a couple guys from the Army who come to us with an amazing story of the Creek Fire in California that wreaked havoc on California. So these guys went in and saved a whole bunch of lives, and they are here to tell their story. Amazing. So please welcome our next guest, The two pilots in the Chinook, Mr. Joe Rosamond and Mr. Brady Labine, as well as our 860 driver pilot, Mr. Kip Godding. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard rescue swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Real Rescue. I've got uh, a unique experience with me today, which I'm like super pumped to hear about because these guys, we actually heard from the Navy boys and they went out and did some work with the Creek Fire and those guys got me in touch with these guys. This is the Army. Yes, the Army. I think you guys are actually my first Army guys now that I think about it. I'm going to have to look back, but you know what? We're going to see you guys are the first Army guys. Hurrah. All right. What's Wait up? On and trails <laughs> yes yes it's gonna start right here from you guys all right so here's the deal is these guys went out and did an amazing rescue with the creek fire now the creek fire in california uh was devastating and it demolished a lot and in all the records and everything they talk about it was like what was it 260 people or something like that that you guys went out and saved collectively is that about accurate Two
1: i think sp- over the course of there you go. Go good, Joe. <clears throat> oh, got it. Yeah, I think that was about right.
0: Okay. We're going to go with it. 260 people, give or take. That's pretty good. So let me introduce you guys right now. Flying the Chinook on that in particular day, or days, this is plural, is Joe Rosamond, and he was sitting right seat in the Chinook. Is that right, Joe? Did I pronounce that right?
1: That is correct. Yes, both pronunciation and position. Yep
0: yes and then we had the co-pilot sitting in the left seat mr brady Levine. nice stoked and then on the other side we have an h60 driver uh pilot in the right seat mr kip Goddard. how are you sir good how are you did i get that one right too you're correct all right i was batting like seven like almost 75 percent. it was great <laughs> well guys again i thank you so much for coming on and joining me um i'll tell you what I'm going to get right into this and I I like to read the DFC that you guys earned. And um, when I was reading it, everybody's name, you guys all got pretty much the same write-up from your position. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, Yeah, I think they were all, all about the same. Yep.
0: Okay. So I'm going to read the one and I'm just going to say, instead of a name, I'm going to say crew member. Okay. And that way, so everybody's on the same page and you guys all, everybody out there that's listening can understand that, This DFC was written for everybody. You guys all got it, all the crews. Uh, And then we're going to go a little further than that. You guys good with that?
2: Yep, sounds good. good.
0: All right, let's dive right in. The award write-up, the Distinguished Flying Cross. The President of the United States of America, authorized by Act of Congress, July 2nd, 1926, has awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross to each of the crew members involved in the Creek Fire 40th Combat Aviation Brigade for distinguished acts of heroism while serving as a crew member in the support of California's Creek Fire. The crew risked their lives to rescue 30 families which were stranded at mammoth pools after being isolated in rapid-growing Creek Fire. Each crew member and his team pursued a hazardous, ingest, even through the team that was advised, that the conditions were too smoky to attempt an air rescue. The only suitable landing zone for his team was surrounded by fire within 50 feet. He and his team returned to the rescue site additional times under rapidly deteriorating conditions. Each crew member, personal courage and astute analyst during the dire situation saved lives. Their actions are in keeping with the highest military traditions of selfless service, honor, and personal courage, and reflects great credit upon himself, the 40th Combat Aviation Brigade, the California Army National Guard, and the United States Army, signed President Donald J. Trump. You guys, holy cow. That is amazing. What an amazing write-up. 260 people, and you guys put yourselves at line fly within 50 feet of, of smoke and fumes and fire. And like, I remember that, that fire and it was gnarly. The other thing that I thought was interesting and I'm, I'm going to like, I'm going to keep talking for a minute and then I'm, you guys are going to take over, but you guys also got an award in London, which I'm curious as to how that happened. So for everybody out there, but, um, this was out of like, uh, what was this out of national guard dot their news article, two California Army National Flight Crews were awarded the prestigious Prince Philip Helicopter Rescue Award by the Honorable Company of Air Pilots in London. Like what? You guys went around the world with this case. So uh, (laughs) Joe, let me start with you for a minute, bud. Let's start right from the beginning. The fire starts and I get it, it was all over California what were you guys up to what were you doing were you standing by and ready to go for this or was this like a like an afterthought to call you guys
1: yeah no i mean so like um that was labor day weekend and uh and like most families we were the the guard doesn't necessarily keep a uh a standby crew over the holiday weekends i mean we're not tier one we're not anything like that right so so i was my wife and I—we were trying to figure out what the heck we were going to do for uh, for the holiday. You know, get the kids out of their house and off their devices. Um, and you know, and then right around right around 5 o'clock in the evening—that's when the uh, the mass text came out from at least on the the Stockton point of view uh, came out across the uh, everybody's devices, saying, "Hey, we've got this rescue coming on, and uh, we need a crew who's available." So, me personally, I you know asked the wife hey we don't have anything going on and it, there's this thing going on can I go type of thing and uh and part of that too was that uh, a lot of the other crews had just gotten back from uh a couple fires previously so it was already I kind of felt it was already kind of my turn in the turn to go type of thing um and she was good with it I had to do some coordination with my son who was gonna I was gonna Play some Zelda with later, but uh, other than that, I got the got the uh, the thumbs up from the family, and and then uh, just texted back that I was available, and started the process of packing and going into work and getting everything ready. Um, and I imagine that was pretty much the kind of the same thing for for everybody else, uh, all the other six folks on that day.
0: Right on. Well, but well, yeah, we're just jump to in and more. ask. But I do love the fact that you had to ask your wife if you could go, cause I would have to do the same thing. <laughs> honey, honey, can I go? This looks like a lot of fun. Please, can I go? <laughs> All right, uh, Brady, what about you? Where were you at? Yeah, pretty similar. Uh, I was uh, just getting off the fire
3: that Joe was talking about. So I'd spend a couple weeks doing some other aerial firefighting and got done that day before. So I happened to be in the Stockton area just visiting some friends. Uh same thing when the text comes across, just uh respond with hey, who's available, I'm available. So pretty quick. Um they said, okay, we got a crew, everybody hurry up and get to Stockton as fast as you can. We all made it there pretty quick, and then there was a lot of preparation to do. Like I wish it was as easy as, all right, we're here, let's hop in the helicopter and go do what we got to do. But there's a lot of prep work, paperwork, you know, risk assessments, prepping the aircraft. Um, so we kind of had a divide and conquer everything we could to get to get that aircraft off the ground as quickly as we could with the the limited information we had
0: we're going to come back to that for sure because uh prepping the aircraft is is definitely a different aspect than what i'm used to because our aircraft is usually ready to go uh coast guard wise was since when i got out of the coast guard we had to do that too whereas oh what are we going to and you have to reconfigure an entire aircraft so i'm going to come back to that all right kip My friend, where are you at with all this? Same thing, big text come through and let's rock and roll.
2: Yeah, so the, uh, at that time, Colonel Hall, you know, notifying the two facilities, he's now a general hall, um, notifying Stockton and Fresno, hey, we need uh, some response from the air crews as far as how many aircraft we can put up and how quick you can be here. So we did the exact same thing. We're at home, whatnot, barbecuing, hanging out and trying to find out who's available, who can get to the airfield and, um, and support the mission. So we all mustered back here to the airfield, did just like those guys getting the aircraft out, getting the bucket out, making sure we're not forgetting anything and getting ready positioned to respond to this need.
0: Awesome. I love it. Now, were you going to plan on fighting fires or planning on going into rescue?
2: So, the initial call, you know, there's a lot of people involved. There's a lot of um, just like you were when a kid, one message gets transmitted to one person and to another person, to another person. <laughs> so I, I was a little unsure. And and right up until the time that we left, this is the Black Hawk, right until we left Fresno, I wanted to take the bucket with me. At that time, I knew we were still going to be primarily concentrating on on people, but I still wanted to take the bucket. Nobody had mentioned buckets, um, but you never know when you need it. And to get it out there, I can drop it anywhere. I wanna drop it off and it can just hang out there if I need it, great, if I don't. Um, but then the word came, you, know, you guys are definitely not gonna be doing any water bucket work. You're definitely just gonna be taking people that are in a dangerous situation and bringing them somewhere safe.
0: Love it, love it. Brady, let me jump back to you real quick. Cause you had mentioned you were actually firefighting that the day before. Yeah, were you were you firefighting the Creek Fire? Like no, another
3: was- one. It was further up north, and uh, they all kind of run together. It was either the Lightning Complex or the BTU or the Glen. Like every year for fire season, we're usually out there for you know two weeks to two months with crews rotating through every you know seven to ten days. Um, and you know we're out there just you know putting putting water on fire. Um, so yeah, a bunch of our crews had just gotten done firefighting one of those fires that time.
0: Awesome. Love it. Love it, man. You guys, you guys are busy then. All right. So now you guys get this call out um, and we talked about it a little bit offline, but the Chinook and the H60, you guys are at two different units, right? So you're responding from two different locations. Chinook, where are you guys responding from?
1: Uh, So yeah, we're out of Stockton.
0: Okay. And then uh, Kip, you're coming out of Fresno, you said.
2: We're Fresno, yeah.
0: Got it. Now, did you guys know you were going together to this, to do this joint mission together, or is it kind of like find out when you get up there?
2: So I was aware. I knew that the that the Chinook um, had been told to respond over to the Fresno area and get us on our internal frequency, and that we would link up either in route, depending on just the timing, or we would link up, you know, at the perimeter or or at the pickup site. Um, I'm not sure how much Joe knew when he took off, if the 60 was involved. He definitely, we we talked to each other while I was still on the ground. He was flying in route to the fire and I was still on the ground here, not turning blades yet. And we talked on, on our internal frequency to figure out what we were going to do.
0: Nice. Now, if I had been, you, yeah, was... I would have been like, hurry up. I'm going to get them all. You're going to be <laughs> late.
1: <laughs> sorry. Yeah, sorry yeah, luckily it was a... <laughs> Yeah, luckily it was, you know, was, we knew it was about an hour, hour and 10 minute flight to get down to that area from Stockton. And uh, in that time where Kit came up on the radio, that was the first time I uh, was then notified that there was going to be another ship uh, on this, which is great to have them around.
0: That's awesome. All right. Next question is going to be, what did you guys know you were flying into? And they gave you like this idea, Hey, you're going to go into a, you're flying into the fire, which is like everything against of what everything we've been taught as aviators to do, which just throwing that out there for everybody, like hey yeah, let's fly into the fire. No, let's not fly on the edge and you dump the water on the edge. I <laughs> thank you, Tony Weber. I'm throwing him a bone out there. But how, what did you guys know? What did you hear? Did you hear the thirty families that were trapped or?
1: So originally when when the first text came out, it came out as 30 people, right? So we're responding for like, okay, 30 people. And that was that kind of led into thinking that we were getting called because it's 30 people and the Chinook usually carries about 30 people, right? As we're doing pre flight, as we're getting everything ready to go, that that transformed into 30 families. So now we're doing mental math, like, okay, 30 times where that's quite a bit more people, you know. This is gonna be a long night, fellows. And um uh, we, the conditions we knew were flying towards a fire, but we didn't exactly know where the fire's edge was in comparison to mammoth pools at that moment in time. Um, we didn't have any of the fire traffic area data right so we, we uh, there was a lot of unknowns, we didn't know exactly where the LZ was going to be and we and we had only gotten the, this, like Kip was saying we only got this like text that that said, yeah, somewhere near Mammoth Pools, and that was through like four different people, you know, worth of telephone game, and so you can only trust that as far as you can throw it, right? And uh, yeah, and so we spent that we spent that hour and ten minutes going down to Fresno, like texting when we shouldn't be texting in the aircraft, right? And, and going no, back and absolutely forth. absolutely
0: not, and, no sir, that did not trying,
1: happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, trying trying to call Cal Fire and and uh, and and get even the that fire traffic area uh, all of their frequencies and the data for that through the Sacramento uh, ECC. Uh, So we spent almost that entire hour uh, just data gathering and it got extremely frustrating because uh, at one point we had, I mean, no less than seven wrong coordinates that we had been given. Uh, We were trying to convert. I mean, Brady's over there doing circles for me and, uh, you know, kind of, watching me uh uh, go through the roof a little bit on these stupid coordinates i was converting you know three or four times and trying to place on the map and and uh he kept it calm and whatnot but uh and so it finally got to a point where um it it was uh calling the uh the creek fire operations guy whoever that was uh uh and saying, okay just where are the damn people you know like where are they and and he, he said Oh, mammoth pools. Okay, cool. We can do that. I know where that's at on the map, you know, and that's really how that all came to fruition. Wow, all
0: right, I got to back up just a minute, um, Brady. You had mentioned earlier like you had to reconfigure the aircraft and get it ready to go. Prior to when you got into the aircraft, what was it set up for? Um,
3: <clears throat> it was uh, just not ready. Essentially, you know, we're not medevac. We don't have the aircraft. Aircraft uh, pre-flighted and ready to go. Normally, when we come in for a mission, we have plenty of time to p- do our pre-flight, um, make sure that it's configured for whatever we're doing. Um, whether that's water buckets, like Kip was saying, like we we initially thought we were bringing our water bucket as well, so we put it on a cart, rolled it in the aircraft, thinking we were going to need that. And again, as we gather a little more information before we uh, hit the road, we realized we don't need this water bucket. We're actually going to need the internal space, so let's take it out. Um, and then there's other considerations too, are we going to be needing to use our hoist, which requires a whole nother reconfiguration we actually have to remove. Some components so we can run a cable through the belly of the aircraft so all this stuff while Joe's going through the risk assessment looking at weather, getting the, the frequencies and the coordinates which ended up not being super helpful. Um, and we're just trying to get the aircraft fueled up pre and and ready to launch. Um, and I mean it was great that we had two experienced flight engineers to come with us too. So um, the Chinook, our minimum compliment to fly is two pilots in the front and a flight engineer in the back. We often fly nice. with a flight engineer and a crew chief. Um, in this case, the two guys who happened to be able to respond uh, for the non-rated crew members in the back were two experienced flight engineers. So they were able to make the whole process go a lot quicker and smoother than it
0: otherwise may have. Love it. Love it. Kip, I got to run to you for a second here now. You guys are getting ready to go out. You know, you'd mentioned getting the bucket and then not needing the bucket. What was your configuration set up in your aircraft? And how many guys did you end up taking?
2: So there was three three crew members. We have two pilots and then we go with one crew chief. Um, the crew chief that was with us this particular day was already a warrant officer one because he's waiting to go to flight school and he's now returned. He returned last week and so now he's a pilot as well. Um, oh, shout out.
0: Congratulations yeah. to him. That's amazing. Good for him. Awesome.
2: Yeah. So we had had two pilots in the front and then um, a WO W01 as the crew chief. And the same thing, you know, kind of contemplating because the information was not... Uh, as timely or as correct as we wanted it to be um, just trying to figure out are we taking this bucket or not and um, you know the coordinates and the frequencies and and, and how we're going to link up so just just working through all that stuff same exact scenario um, trying to get weather trying to get uh, as much information as we can before we leave the ground and we only have the radios at that point so just working through it as fast as we can
0: all right Okay, now you guys get a chance to link up. You've video called each other. They kindly come back and give you a proper location of Mammoth Lakes. Take us in. Like, what did you see going in? And, and yeah, take us through it.
2: So when we initially launched, like Joe and uh, Brady were saying, they weren't aware that there was gonna be another 60 joining them. So they pushed over to the fire, to the grids that, grid coordinates that we had, trying to figure out where exactly it was elevation, all those types of things. Um, Just about that time I launched, we started communicating uh, on the internal frequency and telling them that, hey, I'm about 15 minutes behind you. Uh, I'm going to catch up with you. And then when we got out to the actual fire area, there was a air attack already on station and he was working tankers. So he didn't know we were coming. um, And we really didn't know that he was out there either, but we could hear him that he was out there directing tankers, dropping fire retardant, along wherever perimeters he was trying to manage. And when we were getting close to him, Joe and Brady were asking, hey, we are trying to get to Mammoth Pools and trying to coordinate us passing their lines, getting past where they were actively fighting the fire so we could get to the area that we wanted to. And it just took a little bit of coordination because they weren't expecting us. Um, And normally when the tankers are dropping, they usually take the rotor Wing guys and they give them an area to stay at, and then they wait till all the tanker drops are clear and done, and then we transition. And like you were saying in the beginning, normally, as firefighting, what we do is we stay outside of the fire, and we're usually on the green part of the fire that hasn't burned, dropping our water right where the black part of the fire is, and it's burning. So this time, we were gonna completely pass the black and go deep, deep, deep into the area that was burnt, which you know we were trying to get as much information, as much coordination from that air attack who was already there, so he was trying to hold us um, Trying to figure out exactly what was going on, how he could sequence us through, because um, he didn't order us, he he didn't request us to be out there. Somebody, another entity, request us to be out there. So it just, just took a little while to communicate and find out what everybody's intentions were and what everybody was trying to do. And I can hand it back to Joe. All
1: right, Joe. All right. Just like Kip was saying, you know, it. Uh, um, There's a lot of other thing moving parts going on that that luckily with our relationship with Cal Fire, we already knew about. Like we knew that, hey, typically there's all these other things happening, and so we we were able to make coordination. And like I said, it was uh, it was getting late in the day already. So uh, as we were circling, I remember we were circling over this apple orchard. Uh, Kip was just taking off out of Fresno, and uh, we were, you know messing around with these coordinates, trying to figure out where we were going. And it just so happens that the sun was setting. All of the the Cal Fire uh, operations for, in the air were ceasing for the day because they they made it they got the cutoff. And that kind of opened up the airspace for us. Um, and the air nice. attack uh, then kind of gave us the airspace. As we were doing that, making those circles in that orchard, uh, we happened to see where the fire line, where it crossed the San Joaquin River, there was a little bit of a break in the smoke, right? And, and, um, and so really at that point, the, the, once we got confirmation, yeah, mammoth pools, oh, and by the way, there's nobody else out here that we can run into in, in, uh, in the airspace uh we came up with this plan to hey well we don't really know like you said we typically just plan the fire's edge and and drop water on fire right so and going into the black is not something we normally do so we didn't really know what to expect our best plan was uh we had goggled up at this point it was starting to get dark enough where goggles were the best um and uh so okay well let's try to go through that break in the smoke and break through the active fire and see if we what happens on the other side basically um and maybe a little bit of ignorance, maybe being a little bit naive to it. I completely expected that once we got through the wall of smoke, that it was going to be better on the other side. And uh, <laughs> within, within within seconds <laughs> realized that that was uh, exactly the wrong thing to assume because um, uh, it was got much darker. Uh, The visibilities got much worse. I mean, we were immediately down to about a half mile visibility. I remember those first, you know, 30 seconds or so was like, okay, how the heck are we going to do this? Right. Um, I can't see a thing. We've got blackened terrain that's been burned uh, on a black uh, moonless backdrop. Um, And almost as quickly as that panic kind of you know know, that fear kind of like or that realization of like oh man what we get ourselves into almost as immediately as that hit then we start seeing uh all the little spot fires the leftover vegetation that was on fire that was kind of outlining that terrain and you could see that it was as you moved the aircraft it was kind of moving and giving you some of those overlapping contours and some of that uh you know uh, motion parallax type stuff and like, oh wait a second I can see I can't see that far in front of me, but I, but we could, this is doable. Like we could do this. Right. Um, yeah. and so like, I, I, swear every minute, you know, maybe two minutes, uh, we were, uh, between Brady and I, we were kind of talking about what we like constantly what they, this is what I can see. What can you see? Um, I think we still have, I think this plan is still viable, uh, is everybody comfortable still. And, and, um, and every time we asked that for the next, however long it was, I don't even remember, maybe 20 minutes or so on ingress, like every minute or two, we were asking uh, for everybody to kind of chime in with, with how they felt. And, and every single time, uh, the crew members, uh, the flight engineers in the back, Cameron and George, uh, they said, yeah, we're good to go. Let's keep going. We got to do our best.
0: What about you, Brady? How are you feeling? Cause you're looking at it firsthand.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: it's guys um, in the back—we we don't quite see it in the back the way you guys see the front. We're looking on the sides. All right? That's what we see. <laughs> yeah,
3: you're absolutely right, and that was why uh, I think, like Joe was saying, it was so important for us to continue that communication with them. Um, and I do remember a couple times saying, "Hey, are you guys still comfortable if we keep if we keep trucking on?" Um, and they would they'd say, "Yeah, you know, we're good," but you could also tell maybe there was some hesitation. So I thought it was important to explain to them why we were still comfortable moving on right so the whole time that we're on that ingress that joe was talking about we're flying nice and slow right plenty of time to react to anything that comes up in front of us we're also cross monitoring off of our maps so we got moving maps in the aircraft and we also have ipads so we can look at all right this is the valley we're flying down right now this is the height of the terrain out both left and right doors Um, We can see those embers burning along the ridgelines, so we can fly nice and slow to that next ridgeline. Part of the consideration was we want to fly as high as we can so that we don't get tied up with any terrain, snags, power lines, things like that. Um, But we also need to fly low enough that we stay below the thick layer of dark smoke above us. Because as soon as we get above that ridgeline, now there is no more flames um, that our goggles can amplify so we can have that, that contour. Uh, to be able to see the ridge line. so we want to fly low under the smoke but high enough to stay above any power lines and snags so our plan was essentially just go ridge line to ridge line as long as we can see something in front of us and out, out both sides left and right we know we're safe and then we also had a backup plan which uh joe and kip can fill you in like they, they developed a, an inadvertent plan uh, on the way in
0: i love it kip let me come back to you you're, you said you were 15 minutes behind you're going to catch the chinook
2: yeah. So while we were waiting, um, you know, we're getting goggled up and then uh, I could see their their position lights and their strobe lights. And so we got a little communication at the same time that the air attack said, hey, I, I'm not aided. I'm, I'm only with my eyeballs. I don't have goggles. So they gave us the airspace and we started heading in and I slowly just caught up little by little until I was just about, uh, you know, quarter mile behind him and then slowly slowly caught up that we were we we're basically a formation you know 10 15 discs from each other and then just depending on the visibility of the smoke get a little closer get a little further whatever this smoke would allow me to to stay um stay close enough to, to see him but still give each other room to maneuver and room to slow down and not not endanger the other guys but um you know just plugging along like like the guys are saying we could see the the little bits and embers of things burning and that gave you a lot of uh distance help as far as height and and distance from the aircraft and that was uh super beneficial in picking the right route and just slowly plugging along until we could get closer to the to the lz
0: so and with all of this going on you uh you and joe come up with a little backup plan what brady just said so what what's this backup plan i love a backup plan i love options man
1: Joe? Well, at this point- uh, <laughs> I love how you just yeah, said Joe I, out of
0: the bus. Joe, Joe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, all right. So um, at this point we're in the valley, um, Kip's behind us. I, I remember we were, for lack of a better term, we're kind of steady state now, right? We've put this, this series of recurring events. Okay, is everybody good? This is what I see, this is what you see. Okay, now I'm finally able to think about, well, what happens if we go in invert? What happens if this visibility drops to zero and we can't see anything? So, um we uh, I remember aiming the searchlights at, you know so they, so that uh, one it wasn't blinding us, but then Kip could see us a little bit better with the searchlight aiming down that sort of stuff and uh, I mean really my plan was if we went in the and I was just going to climb, turn around and go back to the uh, to the west. Well, now that we're a formation, kind of an ad hoc formation, um, I wanted to make sure to at least get that briefing item done with uh, with Kip so uh, call them on the internal frequency and, and just let them know, hey, Kip, you know, just in case I go inadvertent, this, this is my plan. I'm going to, you know, climb up and turn around. Just so happens that uh, about that same time, uh, I think Kip lost sight of us uh, in, in, in the smoke. And so, uh, Kip, if you want to elaborate from your perspective.
2: Yeah, there. it was obviously, uh, the pucker factor was pretty good. We were working very hard. Um, we were right at the limits of our, you know, ability and, losing a little bit of sight of the lead aircraft and then hear him come over internal talking about inadvertent i thought that he was inadvertent i was right on the edge of going inadvertent so i immediately turned around right then without any hesitation and headed back out the same way we came in then once he told me this is my inadvertent plan and started talking a little bit obviously we were making a distance between each other but we were also going opposite directions so he was continuing in and i was continuing out and um, that's that's how we we briefed our inadvertent and how we executed our inadvertent.
0: All by accident and on purpose. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Dang. All right. So at what point did you guys, so you guys are, let me back up. You guys are, are flying out right now. Kip, you're now turned around. Did you get out to beyond the, the fire and then come back or?
2: Yeah, so the area that, that the fire was in Um, is a little bit more familiar to me than than the other crews, because it was right up the road from Fresno. So most of the mountains, canyons, high, I was super familiar, and I say I I mean me and my crew. Um, The other, the co-pilot, Irvin Hernandez, and then the crew chief, who's now a pilot, Ji Zhang. So me, we, us, it's all of us. Um, so Agreed. I knew the area, we all knew the area. So we exited out. I knew that there were other ways that I could get in there but I definitely did not want to go down the same canyon as another aircraft who I didn't know the distance ahead of me now once I lost sight of them. So we went around and just did a, a, a counterclockwise orbit around the edge of the fire um, all the way around, um, I, gosh, I would say you know, five, six miles at least um, and then entered through the east to get to the Mammoth Pools area through a different canyon. But after we split up, um, those guys continued through the river valley going to Mammoth Pools. Uh, we went around counterclockwise and communicated with each other, hey, where are you at? Okay, I'm I'm eight miles to the west of Mammoth Pools. Okay, I'm five miles to the east of Mammoth Pools. So we know we're not in any kind of danger of. of hitting each other and then slowly talked each other in um, those guys saying, okay, I have sight of the reservoir now. And then me just a couple minutes behind them. Okay. I have sight of the reservoir as well. Okay. I can see your strobe light. I see you. I have you. We're no, no danger of, of colliding with each other anymore. We're going to, we're going to be able to, to deconflict.
0: Wow. All right. So uh, Brady, let's come to you real quick. You guys come out through the smoke. You decide to continue to keep on even after like with the inadvertent IMC, this is what we're going to do and you guys just keep trucking along. When you got over into Mammoth Falls. I mean, I, I get it where you're like socked in. Um, I've never flown in the smoke that you guys have flown in so I, I can't speak for my own, uh, my own experience but how the heck did you guys find a place to land. Yeah, it's a great
3: question. So we uh, I'm, I'm looking at a map right now, and it looks like we came in on what looks like uh, the San Joaquin River. It turns into Camp Creek, and that leads right to the dam on the south side of Mammoth Pool Reservoir. So first thing we see um, is the smoke clears up a little bit because obviously the whole reservoir itself isn't smoky. Um, it's just pitch black, but that stands out against everything else that's a little bit burning and smoky and small flames and embers. So we see this big black opening. We know that's the reservoir. And then we see a large dam. Um, Meaning we're just like looking around like, okay, how are we gonna find these people? This is a huge body of water. Are we just gonna scan the perimeter? And we start looking, you know, where can we potentially land? Well, the dam is one of those few places um, that isn't on fire. There's no vegetation or anything on it. So that, that becomes an option right away. And as we're coming over the dam, we just start scanning across the, the reservoir. And uh, we see at about our 10 o'clock flashing lights far off in the distance, distance. Um, like, well, that's the only sign of life out here. Let's, let's go check that out. So we come down over the reservoir, start heading towards those lights. And we realize that they're, um, they're people's SUVs, automobiles, campers, they dro- have driven them all the way down the boat launch, down to the, the dried up beach area. Uh, and they had their flashers on. Presumably because they could hear us, and that was their best chance to try to signal us. Wow. So we see that um, we're like, okay, we need to try to find a spot to land. Um, unfortunately, like most of the reservoirs in California, the last couple of years, the water line is way lower than it normally is, which you'd think would be useful on that It maybe be somewhere to land. But it's too steep, uh, too rocky, too sandy. Not really somewhere you can you can land a helicopter. So we come into that area. Um, we spot uh, the boat launch itself. Um, so again, something that doesn't have any trees or rocks on, on it, no fire, no smoke. There is sand to both sides of it. So we do prepare to come in and do a, a dust landing. But we know that at least it's some, a solid piece of ground that people are driving up and down with their boats. So it should be able to support us. So we picked the boat launch. We uh, were able to do an approach and safely land at the boat launch.
1: Wow. wow. Joe, how'd that look for you? Yeah. So. Yeah, I remember uh, just doing the flight. I remember uh, Brady going, "Hey, I see the dam," uh, and then a few seconds later, I uh, I see it go uh, through the chin bubble, uh, underneath the chin bubble. I'm like, "Okay, cool. Now we've got uh, a reference point. We're over the water now," um, and like he was saying, we we just start scanning for. Okay, we. Uh, oh, and then he calls out, "Yep, I see some flashing lights over at our 10, 11 o'clock." We start heading that direction, and sure enough, that's where all the people are. We immediately start going into uh lz selection mode right and uh like you said had the um we had picked out an initial spot started doing the approach when i go wait nope that's a cliff from the drought uh we're not that's not going to work out so we start sliding around uh, to the other side of the people trying to stay somewhat away from them so our rotor wash doesn't doesn't cause any any other uh injury or damage or anything like that we find the boat launch and almost unanimously at the same time uh, everybody goes yep that's going to have to be the spot. Um, There's a little bit of a wider area on the boat ramp about halfway up uh, that gave us a little bit more maneuver room. Uh, so we just uh, set up for a degraded visual environment approach. We have some modes on the aircraft that help us out uh, to keep us from uh, uh, doing dumb things in, uh, in, the, in the sand and uh, turn those on briefed it real quick and uh, did the approach. Um, as soon as we got into ground effect, uh, lost visuals, the flight engineers uh, called us in and kind of, um, they did like the fine tuning, you know, left one, you know, forward one, whatever, turned yeah. it, the tail this way. And, um, uh, and so then we did the, did the landing. Uh, on, on the first landing, we actually started rolling backwards down the, down the ramp because the brakes yeah. didn't hold. So oh, no. uh, we uh, we picked it right back up to a hover again, got stabilized, reset the brakes, did it again, and everything worked out just fine after that. Oh, gee. <laughs> <laughs> all right, <laughs> oh good. Yeah, then we, down, it ended up being, yeah and then we looked down and yeah. Then we looked down and oh man, that's about a thirteen degree uh, slope, uh, which <laughs> is you know there there are no slope limits in a Chinook, but I'll tell you that's one of them. That that gets uh, that was pretty close. <laughs> um, uh, yeah so uh and then we started being able to look around we saw where the fire was saw where the people was and uh, and then just tried to communicate whatever information that we could back to back to kip like hey man this is a 13 degree slope if you're going straight into it you know that way he can come up with his own plan once once we got out of there
0: gotcha all right so now once you guys get on deck uh back ramp lower down or are you guys going out the side door
1: yeah, fly engineers uh, uh, lowered the ramp and okay. uh, so one works the ramp one works the uh, cabin door uh, okay. I'm, I'm pretty sure that both of those went down uh, okay. the, the primary means of getting everybody on was through the ramp but uh, but the uh, fly engineer who was up front I'm sure he exited his his uh, his cabin door um, and then started uh, they both just started assessing the situation tried to uh, uh, triage and and uh, assess who the priority was to come in they we prioritized the uh, – and luckily, they also had some help on the ground. There was a lady on the ground. Uh, all we know her is the red-haired lady. And uh, uh, she was instrumental also in helping make sure that our priority of getting the injured out first happened, right? So wow. uh, we wanted to make sure that anybody who needed medical attention got on board first on that first trip. Um, and then they just loaded the air. Brady and I kind of sat up front and got to relax for a little bit. Uh, While well, they they loaded the aircraft with, uh, I think it was uh, sixty five people that that first time. Sixty five people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that was right. Uh, 62, 65, something like that. Um, and uh, and all, in the meanwhile, Brady and I are just sitting up front trying to come up with a with a performance plan. You know, we're doing a hasty performance planning. Uh, luckily, we have a system on board the aircraft that'll do that for us. Uh, but that the key factor there is, all right, how many people did you load up? Because I got to put a weight in, in the system here and it'll tell, it'll spit out uh, some numbers, you know, and, and that was the big question mark the whole time. Uh, but they, uh, they counted heads. They said 65 or whatever it was. They, we, uh, we usually use, I think we decided to use 200 pounds per person in the system just because we figured some, some of the people were kids. We saw the kids getting loaded um we we know that in in the united states some people are well above 200 pounds we figured it would average itself out and um so uh that came out to a number and it said oh yeah we got plenty of power so that that first trip was was no big deal uh all the in the meantime uh shows up shows up and i just remember while we're kind of you know really not panicking but everything was really high tension at that point we're trying to you know uh, get things squared away. I remember Kip's calm voice come over the radio and say, Hey, Joe, we're hovering right here behind you. Everything's fine. We got plenty of power. Take your time. When you're ready, just come out to the left and we'll be clear of you. And you'll have plenty of room to do whatever you need to do. And that really, at least for me, it, it, it really helped calm every, you know, it really helped calm me and you know, like, okay, everything's good. This is working out. You know, we can focus on something else. You know.
0: That's so, awesome. It's amazing when another voice from somewhere else, when they come in and you're like, "Oh yeah, yeah, no, it's cool, it's good, we got this." Yeah. All yep. right. So while you guys are loading, now Kip, let me jump to you for a sec. You're literally in a hover, holding behind them, just waiting to land there. Yeah, a little bit. We we'd come in. Um,
2: we we kind of linked up over the radio. I could get their strobe. We watched them come in to land. Um, made sure everything was safe. We, we you know, got an idea of where they were landing. They told us the slope, so We kind of mentally packaged that for later. And then we had gotten a call earlier before we left that there was possibly two locations where the people had congregated. So while they were loading their packs, we made a, a perimeter around the lake just seeing if there was anybody else. There was a number of cars um, gathered in various areas and we just hovered really close to those just gave anybody that was in the woods or underneath their car or in the passenger seat plenty of time to come out to show themselves. And nobody did. So we went on to the next group of cars. So we just kind of did the perimeter of the lake, just making sure there was nobody else stuck somewhere else. And once we found out that there was nobody else stuck anywhere else, yeah, we went and did a hover on the other side of the lake with giving uh, those guys plenty of room and then just telling them, hey, you know, any helicopter pilot, you know, you got your your tail you can't see you got a crew member that can tell you what's going on but you can't see it yourself so um i just wanted him to know that he could do whatever maneuver he wanted to do to get out of there safely pending power and that we were far enough away from him that that the lake was his to maneuver as he sees fit to, to get his load out
0: man what a warm and fuzzy that is my gosh uh, you know what even as a crew member i can tell you that's a warm and fuzzy for me too I'm like oh we got this that's awesome all right. So uh, Brady, let me come to you real quick. Cause now you guys are, you're loading up, you're doing all your calculations. What's the brief to get ready to take off and where are you going?
3: Yeah. Uh, well, like we said, we ran, we ran the numbers. We knew we'd have the power to get out of there. Um, our plan was uh, just to, to get up off that boat launch as, as smoothly and safely as we could uh, and then try to find our way out. So we had kind of briefed uh, something else we'd spoken with Kip on over the radio that um, when he got to the reservoir, he said, hey, guys, I found another route. Maybe you guys should go check out the uh, uh, the east side. You know, that's the way we came in. The visibility was better. So our brief was, let's not go in the way that we just came. Let's not go out the way we just came in because it was pretty smoky. And it sounds like Kip found a better ingress egress route. So let's do that. So the plan was just to, to get over the water, get some speed so the aircraft is more efficient, um, and then find that, that uh, valley that he took on the way in.
0: Wow. All right. So you guys take off. Kip, I imagine you're watching them pull up, rotate out, or, or maneuver any which way that Joe wanted to go there. And then you just, did you just follow in right after them and land right in the same spot?
2: Yeah, we watched them get out and get clear. And, and then we headed in, they load off, off the aft end. So they were they were positioned like the length, the long running length of the boat run, and we were were concerned that people not, there, there. like I said, there was nobody, I don't know this red haired woman that was on the ground, but there was nobody yeah. in charge, there was no, you know, civilian authority in any way, shape or form, whether it be a park ranger or, you know, somebody who was a reserve sheriff from, you know, Madera County, there was nobody there except civilians, so we were really concerned that people would try, would not would not understand that this is a different aircraft where a Black Hawk is 60 and the tail rotor is at the aft end and we didn't want them approaching. So we landed perpendicular. Um, the, the area where there's a little bulbous Um, I guess it's probably a place for people to turn around, or I'm not sure exactly why it is, but there was one point in the boat ramp where it was a little wider than the rest. So we stuck our chin bubble on that and we landed perpendicular to the boat ramp. So the only way they could approach the aircraft was from the right hand cargo door, which is where we wanted them to approach. So we landed there, Uh, crew chief jumped out. people were really calm obviously they wanted to get out of there but nobody was crazy rushing um there was definitely some still injured people so we got those people on board did our calculations as well made sure we were within our margins and um then
0: how many people did you guys load up on on
2: well the first time um i think we had so we have we have uh we had 13 available seats and I think we took 13 or 14 people the first time. I'm not sure everybody was in a seat. So we have, we have seats that, that stroke um, that will absorb G forces if there's an accident. So, I mean, normally you, you, you don't put people on the floor um, unless obviously an emergency, it was an emergency, but at that time we thought, you know, there's plenty of, time for us to make a couple more turns so we just loaded up all the seats we had you know some people had people had uh children on their laps and and pets on their laps and whatnot but we basically put somebody in every sheet every seat and then and then departed
0: oh my gosh that yeah 13 people in the back of a 60 like that's a lot that's a lot like everybody's in a seat though this is great this is great i'm loving it all right so now you guys bail out joe let me come back to you real quick you find your way out did you follow kip's ingress dressed the same way
1: he came in i i think on that first one i am not sure what exactly i think we ended up going right back out the san joaquin river uh and that that was a known quantity to us um and we uh, but uh yeah I, I i forget at this point exactly which way i just remember we took off we're flying back uh, and now we're asking the firefighters, hey, you got any injured back there? And they're like, yeah, we got like a dozen people that have some burns and, and it's pretty bad shape uh, and uh, uh, and whatnot. So then I, I just remember my my focus turning to, okay, well, let's get some EMS rolling. Um, so the, the point of contact that we had with CAL FIRE, uh, we let them know, hey, we're out of mammoth pools with this many people, the Blackhawks on the ground. And that was another thing. We waited... We kind of slowed our egress so that until we saw that Kip was down and safe on the ground and then we, nice. and then we left. Um, and then we let the CAL FIRE guys know, hey, we've got X amount of people. Uh, about a dozen of them are injured. We need EMS to beat us at the Fresno flight activity. Um, and uh, they acknowledged that. We continued the egress. And once we got radio contact, I think, uh, Brady, I think we called Oakland Center. As well at that point, or something. And then, yeah, uh, yeah. Oakland but, Center.
3: And then they handed us off to Fresno Approach and they handed us off to Tower. So we were able to tell everybody, hey, this is an emergency. We need to get all the uh, ambulances we can down to the guard ramp.
0: Uh, yeah. Yep. And we do have 65 people coming down. They're bringing some ambulances out for sure. And we were also yeah. able
3: to get radio contact with our operations at Fresno. Um, so we said, hey, just so you know, there's going to be a bunch of ambulances showing up. Why don't you go open that gate so we can get everybody right on the ramp right away? So it took a little bit of coordination, but we talked to all the people we had to to try to make that uh, go as smoothly as it could when we got back.
0: That's awesome,
1: and it went wonderfully. By the time we showed up twenty minutes later, uh, everybody was ready to receive all those people, and, and I, I know the Air Force responded as well. They had some people from the one forty fourth come across the across the airport, and they and they were helping uh, triage people and and get them. You get them set up, and those and I, the people that were uh, uh, hurt the most uh, or needed attention the most, I know they they got it. They they were some people were ambulanced to the hospital and uh, and whatnot, and that worked out pretty smooth. And and by the time we finished offloading, uh, that's when uh, Kip made it back to the airport, and then we were finally able to do uh, a face to face brief together.
0: Wow, man, that is awesome. All right, Kip, how was your uh, how was your takeoff? and your uh, egress
2: yeah um we you know just followed what they let what they did we did our calculations knew where our margins were anticipated how much power we were going to need to get out of there um we were not as full as they were so we it wasn't as a significant event as it was for those guys and we departed and went to the east and then back towards fresno just like those guys in front of us saying, Hey, we've got three people on board. They're definitely going to need an ambulance. Um, the other ones in, you know, certainly not, not calm, but, but not as injured as, as the couple that needed uh, medical care. And we, Got back to Fresno, Sergeant Bell was the person who was in charge here in Fresno. And she was the one that was coordinating, getting the gates open, getting a triage, getting the fire department on premise, getting the ambulance workers on premise. And then it was a quick handoff. As soon as we landed, as well as when the handed landed, landed, um, the guys were right there, the firefighters and the paramedics were right there to receive those people and take them straight to an ambulance. And they were definitely on the road within a minute. They were headed towards the hospital. So it was great.
0: Wow man the coordination on ground side just to facilitate for all the victims and patients and and people coming out of there that's that's incredible that's a lot of work right there
2: good yeah it was was nice to see when we came over the hill and came down towards fresno that everything the ramp was lit up with you know sirens and and emergency response vehicles ready for us to to land
0: holy cow you know what that as an operator like with you guys in the air that is amazing and awesome to hear because I have, I have been in the back of the helicopter where you land and they're like, we didn't even know you were coming. We're like, we called like 10 people. How did you not know? Yeah, it was never, it was never told. So now you're on the ramp or you're turning for like 20 minutes waiting for an ambulance to show up. So the fact that that was there, props to everybody that was on the ground sport to, to set you guys up for ultimate success. That is awesome. Yeah. So all right, next question. So now you guys have unloaded all these. I imagine you have to get fuel. So you fill up, top off, or get to your whatever weight you need to be at, and then head right back out, same way you came in? Yeah, we got gas, and
2: uh, the our our colonel, who's now General Hall, met us and came over and talked to the crews, wanted to know the conditions, wanted to know um, what level of risk and and our comfort level. So he came to, to the two different crews and and, you know, asked how we felt whether we thought it was we were able to make another turn and um, once we got topped off had a little brief as far as who's going to lead which direction we're going to go where they're going to approach it from from the east again and then head off
0: uh, uh, you guys formation flying out of there now now you guys are together you know what's up and you've already done it once so formation flying all the way out right on the
2: scene and then yeah so to me formation flying i mean we're a little different than the chinooks for us in the blackhawk world if you're if you're closer than 10 discs that's called a formation um okay. you know the chinooks are a little bit bigger obviously a lot more rotor wash so they're they're usually spaced off a little little further so whether i was leading or following i don't i wouldn't call us a formation we were definitely working in coordination with each other and flying the same direction and but i i not necessarily um in formation where you would have to be uh cognizant of the other guy's rotor wash or the other guy's tip path plane so you weren't going to mesh we weren't that close we were just you know keeping each other abreast of our intentions and headed to the same direction both ways
0: love it love it all right so now you get back in again any trouble going back into
1: this landing joe Uh, no actually uh kip uh had we followed kip on the second one and he took us uh through that eastern route the Eastern egress that he did, and it was a much, much better as far as visibility uh, was concerned. Um, And uh, he landed first, and we just kind of loitered over the lake, uh, because he was gonna be in and out a whole lot quicker than we were, uh, just based on on how many people needed to uh, to load on. Um, And that's when we kind of realized that there's more people here than when we left. So, I think that there was like a lot of people either in the water or kind of uh, hiding in their in their trailers or doing whatever you know. Uh, but they were kind of coming out of the woodworks. So and I remember thinking to myself like, "There's I see more heads this time than I did last time." Um, so we probably need to start getting. I don't know how much time we have left, but but we need to start maximizing uh, how much uh, uh, how many people we get on board with, uh, each time. Um, Kept did his. Uh, Air crew unloaded uh, their aircraft and took off and then and then we landed much the same as we did before and and uh, and then our loading process took significantly longer uh, I want to say we were on the ground a good half hour maybe 40 minutes uh, while the flight engineers uh, went to work and uh, once again Brady and I kind up front getting to relax and going okay let's know when you're done how many how many people you know and and they, uh, they said, man, we, we lost count. We don't, we don't know. And, and well, we, we need a number. We need a number that I can put in the system so I know if we have the power to take off. And they estimated around 70, 75. So we used that number. And uh, wow. the system said that we've got just enough power. So we're like, okay, cool, let's do it. Um, we, we took off and immediately knew that 75 was not the correct number that was much higher than that. Um, <laughs> Just that. I mean, oh, the man. aircraft. Come on, crew chief. <laughs> it was all good. It was all good. It was stressful, and and after looking at the pictures and seeing what was back there, I totally understand uh, uh, how they lost count and why there was an estimate, and and uh, uh, and how that estimate could have been low, like it was, like nobody would have ever expected there to be as many people as there was on board. But the aircraft was just shaking so much, uh, blades were flapping, and all this stuff and we try to take off try to get to our best rated climb speed and we couldn't we have another system on board called a cruise guide indicator that thing was i remember Brady was flying at this point and i was really focused on "Hey man we got to get to 80 knots we got to get to 80 knots and and i kept seeing the airspeed come down to like 55 and i'm like dude we got to get to 80 knots we're not going to get out of here we're only climbing at like 200 feet per minute we're at max power i think we over torqued by three percent um we oh had the rotor speed God. up to 103%, and, we're, and I, all these timers are going off. We had a 10-minute timer, a 2-minute timer, all this kind of stuff uh, counting down, and we're barely climbing out. And uh, uh, and Brady goes, dude, uh, look at the CGI. I can't go 80 knots. And, and, I, and I'm like, oh, and it's pegged in the red. I'm like, oh, my God, you're right. So now we're playing this game where we're climbing out at 55 knots, 60 knots. We try to speed it up to get into the more efficient airspeed start shaking to death, so we slow back down and kind of use that to zoom climb a little bit, cycle climb a little bit, get a little bit more climb out of it, and we're just constantly kind of back and forth, trying to stay at our best rate of climb, but also not overstress the aircraft more than we already have, um, and and it took an extra 10 minutes or so just to get the climb done, to get above the terrain, and get to a point where we could cross the ridge lines to get out of the smoke. So that one was, uh, that was pretty hairy. We we uh, egressed, uh, got to Fresno Airport. I remember we wanted to do a roll-on uh, just because we didn't know how much power uh, it was gonna take, if we had uh, hover capability, any of that kind of stuff, so we are gonna do a roll-on. Um, and that's when the flight we said, well, that's gonna be a problem too. Uh, we have people loaded on the ramp, so we can't raise the <laughs> ramp, so we can't do a roll-on. So we opted for <laughs> the next Thank pass, God. which was the uh, we opted for the, the in-ground effect deceleration, uh, which worked out, um, and, uh, and then we landed taxi, four-wheel taxi again. Um, when we offloaded, uh, we counted, and I think some people on the ground counted as well, and I ended up with 102 people on board uh, oh for that. for that lift. And, it, and when they said the number, like, oh yeah, okay, yep, that makes sense. Now, with everything else going on, that, that totally makes sense. <laughs> oh, holy shit.
0: 102 <laughs> yeah. people. All right, so Brady, I got to come to you cuz you were on the controls coming out of there. Like I you know but the majority of people out, out in the world can understand white knuckle driving. That is probably the best comparison that we that we can say like to white knuckle flying cuz that's exactly what that sounded like.
3: Yeah, I'd say that's a fair comparison. Um So, you know, like Joe said, we ran the numbers. We said, if we got 75 or 80 people, uh, this is how much power it's gonna take to to lift up. This is how much we need and we'll be good. So again, as soon as we lift it up, not only did we realize that we had significantly more weight on the aircraft than we expected, we also had uh, our our center of gravity was out of balance as well. So because we had so many people in the aft of the aircraft and all the way out to the ramp, we had an aft CG. So right as the aircraft breaks the ground, um, it starts to list aft, so we're starting to kind of fall back, um, and I'm at a point now where I've over-torqued the aircraft, and I can see the temperature of the engines is a lot higher than we expected it to be, and normally if that happens, you know, you think you, you try to pick the aircraft up, and uh, you don't really have the power margins you thought you would, you could just put it back down, in this case, the aircraft is kind of falling down and back and we're on, a, on an upslope, So there is no just putting it back down on the ground. So we just had to accept that we were gonna be heavy um, at a high altitude in a very hot environment and do what we could. So um, like Joe said, we just kind of had to swing it around and try to get airspeed as quickly as we could. So we're using all the power we have, gaining airspeed, shooting for that, that best rate of climb airspeed, that 75, 80 knots while also trying to give the aircraft a little break here and there and slowing it back to that 55 range so we don't overstress the, uh, the, the airframe. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, a, it was definitely a two man uh, maneuver the whole way out. So Joe's monitoring the power and the airspeed. I'm trying to bounce inside and outside to make sure that our rate of climb we have will be sufficient to clear that ridge line that we needed to clear um, at one point, we actually had to do a little bit of some S-turns to buy us some more time because climbing at 300 feet per minute um, wasn't going to be a, a, the proper gradient to clear the ridge line. So we had to give ourselves a little more time to climb. So yeah, it was uh, it was challenging, um, but it was stuff that we, you know, stuff that we could do together, um, stuff that we've trained for. You know, we, we practice flying heavy, um, high altitude, hot environment, usually not all three of those
0: things together, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we can practice components of it at all times. I love it, I love it. And yeah, Kip, in front of you guys, be like, what are you guys doing? Stop screwing around, let's go. We gotta get back, we gotta get more people to get. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah we, oh since we led, we, we, took, we got our people and we were on the ground and I, and I was, we were already shut down, our packs had already offloaded and I just was part of the people that was counting all the people coming off the aircraft and the guy next to me was filming with his phone And as we were counting, and yeah, I think we counted 100 or 101 and and a bunch of pets as well. And I just could not believe it was like a circus um, event. You know, all these people just kept coming and coming and coming off that bird. It was awesome.
0: (laughs) Wow. Unreal. Uh, did you guys do just the two trips or did you do a third after that
2: we did a third yeah we did the same same as we did uh that time we got back we talked to the colonel um asked all the crew members how they felt what was going on we were getting cold gas at that time so they were filling us as they were offloading and we were debriefing and you know like joe says when we got in there the second time there was a lot more people there than there was the first time. So he took 102 and we took 21 in the Blackhawk. Oh my gosh. Getting everywhere, everywhere. <laughs> um, and we knew that, you know, there's gonna be more people this next time. And, and, and you know, it was getting later and the, the weather, wind was changing, smoke was changing. So we just didn't know how many more turns. But well, we knew we had at least one more turn. So we got gas and, and debriefed with the Colonel and f- we all felt good to give it another try and we headed off
0: again holy smoke that is awesome all right so now you guys are going in for round three is this where you guys were able to finish it off were you able to get everybody on that last that last trip in in? third time we
2: we we ingressed another way because the other way got a little too smoky so all three ways we went in a different direction we ingressed into the mammoth pools area different different valley um got in there um same as before sat down this time there were less people um there was a couple people that decided to stay um but we i think we took 11 or or maybe 12 or 13 somewhere in that range our third turn um and and there were from what i recall there was a handful a couple less than five people that were worried about their property it was their motor home or was their, you know awesome speed boat that was sitting in the in the lake and they were afraid it would get um, vandalized or stolen or whatnot so there were a couple people that said no i'm gonna stay
0: wow wow uh, that's uh yeah that's that's a little okay. yeah it
2: was, yeah it was unbelievable when when the crew chief said you know that that those two people they want to stay they're going to stay here it's like wow all right good luck to yeah them. yeah but, but yeah. we made sure that we passed to them this is our last trip we are not coming back this yeah. is it Everybody that wants to go, we have room for you. But um, we are not coming back. And and we didn't fill up. Either of us didn't fill up. The, the heavy loads were the second loads. Um, and then the third loads, we went kind of back to what we had done on the first load.
0: Still the same on the first. Let's see, you had 17 in the back of the 860. And you guys had what, uh, you said 65 or so in the back of the Chinook on that, that third trip?
1: Uh, we had 37 on the, I want to say, on the third trip. Uh, yeah, it, it was it was yeah. more normal for, for a third trip.
0: Yeah. See, like this, I got this. Oh, I'm good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, after that, whatever. We got this. Yeah. <laughs>
0: oh, No, no problem. <laughs> wow, you guys. Holy cow. Um, now at this point, I somewhere in this side of the story is where you guys were talking with Josh and the Navy boys coming up from Lemoore, because they had gone into different areas, but they were asking. About where the smoke is, where the ceilings at, and if I remember correctly from him telling the story, you guys were up at almost eleven thousand feet, cruising at some sort of altitude. Is that is that accurate? I don't want to put that words was, into his mouth. It
2: was later, so this was the fifth and okay. the sixth that we were doing this, where we got the, the the three turns that we did. That was the the night of the fifth, and then into the sixth, and it was just us. It was just our two aircraft. Then, got it. Okay. We had a couple days where it was really smoky and none of us flew. We weren't able to get anywhere. we were getting reports of people that we needed to be picked up. Um, no life or death, but people that were, were stranded, fire was moving. They couldn't get back to their vehicles. They needed to be um, evac um, yeah. But it was a couple days later, it was the 8th that, we, that the Navy came up and launched. They, they came and spent the night here in Fresno. And then we worked out that there was three crews, that it was the Chinook, um, the, the Army Black Hawk and then the Navy Seahawk.
0: Wow, man, like it's, it's crazy to think that you guys just pulled, you know, 260 people off that one area in Mammoth Lake and you're not done. Like there's still people that you needed to go back and get. That's, that's awesome. That's crazy. Holy smoke. Guys, this story is just amazing. Like you guys going in the amount of people, the lives that got saved from your crew from days of working. That day in particular, 260, good night. A hundred and, what'd you say? A hundred like three on the aircraft on that second load? Maxing everything, out. 102, let's go with 102. I like 106, but I'm gonna go with 102. <laughs> Over a hundred people on the aircraft and you guys are taking off max power. Oh my gosh, it's, you guys, that's insane. Um, I'll tell you what, before I let you guys go, Joe, let me start with you. Is there anything else that you would add to the story? Are there lessons learned that you would love to pass on to other people that could be in this situation? What do you
1: got? Yeah, uh, one thing I always like to point out is that as, uh, as much of a large part in the, in the success of this mission that, that the flight crews uh, presented, uh, it would not have gone as, it would not have been successful and it definitely would not have gone as smoothly if it wasn't for those support personnel that, that we had on the ground. Uh, our maintenance personnel that, that provided, you know, uh, strong working aircraft, uh, all the way to our operations uh, people that stood up a triage center in the middle of the night uh, in a matter of 20 minutes uh, and had, uh, you know, 260 somewhat people in and out of that facility, triaged out injuries, gone to the hospital, families notified, people getting rides to where they needed to go into hotels, that sort of stuff. Uh, uh, and their coordination with all the local EMSs, the 144th Fighter Wing, Coast Guard, all those, all those people, uh, it all culminated into this being a successful mission.
0: Love it. Absolutely. Love it. I totally agree. There is something to be said about when you have an amazing support system on the ground that you can talk to. It is thank you to everybody that supports us, that goes out, and or that's back at home plate setting everything up for when we leave and get back. I'm totally on board with you with that. Well, well said, well said. Brady as the, uh, as the second in command of that aircraft. And, and I'm, I'm going to say that you took the uh, harder flight out. I'm just going to throw that out there to you. Uh, you know what? You might've worked a little harder than, uh, the Joe over there, but we won't tell him. We won't tell him. <laughs> <laughs> Brady, what would you tell everybody out there that, that again, in your situation, advice to pass and and lessons learned yeah i
3: mean ultimately i just uh we we were we were in the right place at the right time and uh you know we can't thank enough the the people that allow us to do that right so the california national guard um the army um you know the taxpayers that fund our time and training so that we are you know ready to respond in, in a situation like this and, uh, and our families, you know, the ones who are willing to give us up for days, hours, weeks, months, years at a time so that we can go train and be prepared to do this. Um, there's a lot, a lot going on behind the scenes and uh, we genuinely are grateful and appreciative of all those people.
0: Love it. Again, well said. Well said. All right, Kip, to the 60 driver. Like and I, I love my sixty. By the way, I just let me throw that in there as well. All right, let me love me a sixty. I've been on the Chinook, but I love the sixty. I'm just gonna say that. Kip, what advice and or lessons learned would you have out of this mission that you would love to pass on to everybody else?
2: Well, we're very privileged to have been in the right place at the right time and had the opportunity to put our training to good use and help these people in their time of need. But um, whether it's the California Guard or the California Air Guard or the Navy Reserves or anybody um, that's here serving California, male, female, they're here every day ready for this to happen. And um, again, we're happy that it was us and we were glad that that we got to perform, but there's somebody there ready to help you out um, anytime here in the state of California, hundreds ready to go anytime.
0: Love it, love it. It's it's always nice to You know, hey, that's what the tax dollars paid for, right? (laughs) For us to have some fun in a helicopter, just saying, and save a bunch of people that get caught in fires. Just going to throw that out there. You're welcome. Gentlemen, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today and just telling your story, your side of it, and what happened out there, giving us the ins and outs, man. This has been amazing, and I cannot thank you enough. So thank you.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having us on.
0: Anytime. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Real Rescue Podcast. Please take a minute to like, subscribe, and hit that share button. I'm pulling jocks and taking off. But before I go, if anyone out there has a rescue story they would be willing to share, I would be humbled and honored to have you on as a guest. Or if you have any questions about Rescue or anything else we talk about here, send an email to jason at therealrescue.com. That's jason at dot com. You can also check us out on our web pages, therealrescue.com, our Facebook page, and our Instagram page, at therealrescue. Again, a special thank you to all of you standing on the watch today always remember when that SAR alarm goes off those in distress are praying for a miracle they are going to get you until next time fly safe and swim hard